Wow. Uh, we are almost at the end of our journey through Ezekiel. This is the last message in our series, and I hope you have a newfound appreciation for this prophet named Ezekiel. He's a pretty cool dude. Uh, even though his book is long and it's hard to always understand, God used him significantly in his generation. And I also trust that the Lord has spoken to you as individuals, not just to us collectively, but he's spoken to your heart through this series, be it through the Sunday messages or through the weekly Monday to Friday devotion that we've been doing together. I really believe God is speaking. And we conclude our series this morning with the final message, the Lord is there. I'm going to invite you to read with me from Ezekiel 48, verses 1 to 7, and then we're going to jump to 23 to 27, and then we're going to make one more jump to 30 to 35. Would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? It's a little bit of repetition here, so don't get caught off guard. It's just part of understanding the whole picture of what God is doing. So we'll start 48 verses 1 to 7. The scripture is on the screen behind me. Let's read together in one voice. These are the tribes listed by name. At the northern frontier, Dan will have one portion, and it will follow the Hetlon Road to Labo Hamath, Hazar and Nan, and the northern border of Damascus next to Hamath will be part of its border from the east side to the west side. Asher will have one portion, and it will border the territory of Dan from east to west. Naphtali will have one portion. It will border the territory of Asher from east to west. Manasseh will have one portion. It will border the territory of Naphtali from east to west. Ephraim will have one portion. It will border the territory of Manasseh from east to west. Reuben will have one portion. It will border the territory of Ephraim from east to west. Judah will have one portion. And it will border the territory of Reuben from east to west. Okay, good. Let's move down to verse 23. As for the rest of the tribes, Benjamin will have one portion. It will extend from the east side to the west side. Simeon will have one portion, and it will border the territory of Benjamin from east to west. Issachar will have one portion. It will border the territory of Simeon from east to west. Zebulun will have one portion, and it will border the territory of Issachar from east to west. Gad will have one portion. And it will border the territory of Zebulun from east to west. Okay, good reading. We're going to go to verse 30. These will be the exits of the city. Beginning on the north side, which is 4,500 cubits long, the gates of the city will be named after the tribes of Israel. The three gates on the north side will be the gate of Reuben, the gate of Judah, and the gate of Levi. On the east side, which is 4,500 cubits long, will be three gates. The gate of Joseph, the gate of Benjamin, and the gate of Dan. On the south side, which measures 4,500 cubits, will be three gates. The gate of Simeon, the gate of Issachar, and the gate of Zebulun. And on the west side, which is 4,500 cubits long, will be three gates. The gate of Gad 
the gate of Asher and the gate of Naphtali. And the distance around will be 18,000 cubits. And the name of the city from that time on will be the Lord is there. Oh, good reading. We made it. It was like a marathon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that in the midst of all the repetition, there is a word from God in this text. The Lord is there. The Lord is there. The Lord is here today. Where two or three are gathered in a place, he is there in our midst. He is a witness before us. And so we can preach the word of God, which is truth today in this place. And we are witnesses today that it is indeed true. And yes and amen. So, Father, today, as we ponder your word, I pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us. We thank you for the journey through Ezekiel. For many, it was the first time going from the beginning to the very end. And I trust, Lord, that your Holy Spirit has spoken into each and every heart and mind. So, Lord, this morning, I confess my need of you. I cannot preach the word of God without your anointing and your help, Lord. I want to serve your people well, so let them not hear the voice of a man. Let them hear the voice of God speaking through a man communicating truth to the people that they may hear and obey. So we thank you for your promises today. And we hold on to them. We cling to them. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. You may be seated. The 12 tribes of Israel were represented by the names of the 12 sons of Jacob. And just in case you didn't get it, when we were reading all that scripture... We first find them listed in Genesis 35, verses 22 to 26, where it says, Jacob had 12 sons, the sons of Leah, Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Rachel's servant, Bilhah, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Leah's servant, Zilpah, Yad, and Asher. The promised land was distributed to these tribes between Joshua 13 and Joshua 19. You'll see a picture on the screen. And on that picture, you will see the division of the tribes during the conquest period. You'll see all the 12 tribes there. And you'll even see, as Pastor Daniel mentioned to me, you see Manasseh twice. They were given extra land. And so these three tribes were positioned east of the Jordan. And nine tribes were positioned west of the Jordan. And during the early years of monarchy in Israel, it was a united monarchy under Saul, David, and Solomon. The 12 tribes were divided into eventually two kingdoms after that. The kingdom of Judah to the south, the kingdom of Israel to the north. And you'll see a picture now on the screen of both of that division. From 12, we now see two divisions, Judah Jerusalem was the capital of Judah, and then Samaria, which is the capital of Israel. The kingdom of Judah in the south was composed of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin and Levi. And then the kingdom of Israel in the north was composed of the rest, Reuben, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Ephraim, and Manasseh. And then as we scroll through Israel history really quickly, the kingdom of Israel was destroyed by Assyria in 722 BC, and the kingdom of Judah was destroyed by Babylon in 586. There you go. You have your history lesson for the day. I promise I won't go into any more history. 
But this is just a quick overview that I think will be important for you. Because with this background in mind, Ezekiel 48 will make so much more sense to you. Ezekiel's vision is about the restoration. The restoration of the tribes of Israel. The restoration of the city of Jerusalem with its gates. And the restoration of his presence among his people. So this morning, I want to share with you about the importance of three things. Equality, security, and the presence of God in his restoration plan. The first point is equality. We see this in several verses, verses 1 to 7 and 23 to 27. I'm going to read it again to you. Again, there's a lot of repetition, but I want you to catch some of the important nuances that are in the text. Starting in verses 1 to 7, these are the tribes listed by name. At the northern frontier, Dan will have one portion, and it will follow the Hethlon Road to Lebohamath, Hazar Enan, and the northern border of Damascus next to Hamath. will be part of its border from the east side to the west side. That sounds pretty cool, from the east side to the west side. Couldn't help myself, I'm sorry. Asher will have one portion. And it will border the territory of Dan from east to west. Naphtali will have one portion. And it will border the territory of Asher from east to west. Manasseh will have one portion. It will border the territory of Naphtali from east to west. Ephraim will have one portion. And it will border the territory of Manasseh from east to west. Reuben will have one portion. And it will border the territory of Ephraim from east to west. Judah will have one portion. It will border the territory of Reuben from east to west, down to verse 23. As for the rest of the tribes, then Benjamin will have one portion. It will extend from the east side to the west side. Simeon will have one portion. It will border the territory of Benjamin from east to west. Issachar will have one portion. It will border the territory of Simeon from east to west. Zebulun will have one portion. It will border the territory of Issachar from east to west. And lastly, Gad will have one portion. I'm not sure if my hand went down far enough. Gad will have one portion, and it will border the territory of Zebulun from east to west. Wow. You know, how, how was the promised land divided to the 12 tribes of Israel? We have to look back and go to Joshua. Joshua 18.10, and we are told exactly how this was done. Joshua then cast lots for them in Shiloh in the presence of the Lord, and there he distributed the land to the Israelites according to their tribal divisions. Now, here's the thing you need to understand, that the land differed in size from one to another, that no land was the same. No land was the same configuration and size. Consideration was made for the population of each tribe, meaning that the larger tribes needed more land so they could occupy the land, and the smaller tribes needed less land. The topography varied from tribe to tribe. Some lived in the foothills, others in the mountains, some in the deserts, others in the wilderness, some even in the forests. But Ezekiel's vision was unique because the land was divided in a new way, in a different way. It was divided equally from east to west, perfectly. I want you to notice the phrase, one portion. It is repeated a total of 12 times in that text. And no tribe received two portions, 
and no tribe received zero portions. Every tribe received one portion. That speaks to a God who is a God of equality. The city and the temple were set apart actually in the center as the special sacred holy portion, which included the city of Jerusalem, the temple, which includes the priests and the Levites, and the prince. And the portions of Judah, Reuben, Ephraim, Manasseh, Naphtali, Asher, and Dan were positioned from the middle moving upward. And the portions of Benjamin, Simeon, Issachar, Zebulun, and Gad were positioned from the middle moving southward. Again, with the temple area in the middle. And what is God doing through all of this detail? That we can all just scan over and quickly read. No, he's saying something. God reminds his people in every generation that they are equals. The land is a representation of what must happen in the human hearts of his people. God redeemed all of us from our sinful condition, and he has restored us by his grace. Amen? That means God is our portion, and we all have an equal portion from him. That means that there's no favoritism with God. I know you'd like to say that you're God's favorite, but I'm here to tell you that you're not. He has no favorites. He is no respecter of person. And none of his children receive more and some less. All will receive the same inheritance. That means we don't have to argue. The question is this. If God sees all equally, why do we often see each other unequally? This is the habit, the human habit, the sinful habit that we carry. That when reflecting on the 12 brothers that represent the 12 tribes of Israel, we are reminded in Genesis 37:11 that Joseph's brothers were jealous of him. Friends, jealousy creeps into the body of Christ. And we think of ourselves a little higher than the others. In Mark 3.25, Jesus said, If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. There is no room for division in the body of Christ. In first, it says also that jealousy is a threat to the equality within the family of God. That in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 3, the Apostle Paul, he equated jealousy with another negative trait. He said, you are still worldly. For since there was jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? So friends, here's what I want to say, that if we do not treat people with equality, then we are worldly and we're not godly. But here's the thing, when we look at each other in the face, I see a person who's made in the image of God. When I look at you, I see a person who's fearfully and wonderfully made. Now you might say, oh, pastor, you can say that of every believer, but what about the unbelievers? I can say that about the unbelievers as well, because God didn't make them any differently than he made me and you. We're made of the same stuff. So there's really no difference. Yes, they have not accepted Jesus as savior quite yet, but I'm believing they will through my life and through my influence. But here's the thing, just because they haven't accepted yet doesn't make them lesser than. We need to see people through God's eyes. We need to see the image of God impressed upon them. We need to see the redemptive potential over their lives. Because at the end of the day, Jesus died for them just like he died for you and I. So we don't treat people with inequality. We treat people with equality. Because our God treats us with equality. 
And that is the way we show that we are not worldly, we are godly. Secondly, we see security. In verses 30 to 34, let me refresh the scripture for your memory. These will be the exits of the city, beginning on the north side, which is 4,500 cubits long. The gates of the city will be named after the tribes of Israel. And the three gates on the north side will be the gate of Reuben, the gate of Judah, and the gate of Levi. And on the east side, which is 4,500 cubits long, will be three gates, the gate of Joseph, the gate of Benjamin, and the gate of Dan. On the south side, which measures 4,500 cubits, will be three gates, the gate of Simeon, the gate of Issachar, the gate of Zebulun. And on the west side, which is 4,500 cubits long, will be three gates, the gates of Gad, the gate of Asher, and the gate of Naphtali. Here we see Ezekiel's vision moving in its focus from the big land of the nation to now the city gates. And the four walls had three gates for a total of 12 gates. And just as the land was divided by the names of the 12 tribes, so too these gates were named after the 12 tribes. Because this is all about their inheritance. This is similar to what we read in Revelation 21, verses 12 to 13. Where it says, it had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And there were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. You see the similarities? Ezekiel is very similar to Revelation. And what Ezekiel and John have in common is that they both have received a vision from God, a vision of a new temple and a vision of a new city. And just as John's vision points to the future hope of the New Testament, here is Ezekiel, and his vision points to the future hope of Old Testament prophecy. Both texts are giving us hope for things that are yet to come, but will come. Each one represents hope. Eschatological hope, which is a fancy word for end-time hope. But they represent two different covenants, and they represent two different eras. And we have a sense of security when God gives us hope for the future. I want you to know hope is a very powerful thing. That if you possess hope today, then you don't have to be afraid of the future. Because you know who holds the future. And we do. So that sense of security in the now comes from God because he gives us hope now for the future. And that is why Ezekiel and Revelation are actually important books to study. Yet they're often the most neglected because they're so difficult to understand. And these two books, Revelation and the book Ezekiel, is not just a message of destruction. It's a message of hope. We have to get to the bottom of the text, and the bottom message of the text is a message of hope for God's people. You know, I'm doing some renovations at my home, and Kylie and I can attest to all the mess and the process and having to order the materials and have somebody come and do the work, and we're working on our basement. And I'm not very handy, so, you know, kudos to Kylie. She comes from a a family that's very into building, and so she can do some of it. But, of course, we bring other people to do the other small things. But I've realized that in the grand scheme of doing a renovation, 
from bottom to top, the gates are always the, uh, the doors are always the last thing you put in. So right now we're in the midst of putting the doors. We finished the flooring, we finished the drywalling, we finished everything else, but the doors. So that has to happen. Then only it'll be a finished product. In a similar way, the gates were always the last item to be installed when building or rebuilding a city. We see the biblical example. Let me give you the example. Consider Nehemiah, who would later set out to rebuild the city of Jerusalem long after its destruction. In in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1, he wrote, I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not yet set the doors in the gates. The gates were still incomplete, although the wall was complete. Then in Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 1, just one chapter later, a lot of things are accomplished. And he wrote these words, after the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. In Ezekiel's vision, God is here and he's adding the finishing touches before the people could spiritually enter into that holy place. And you likely notice the direction of each of the tribes, uh, each of the sides of the doors. And you saw them going north, you saw them going east, you saw them going south, you saw them going west. Every direction was gated. So there was no area of compromise on that wall. And interestingly enough, we see that the gates were not just entrances, that gates were specifically mentioned as exits. And this is where the security measures come in. This added a sense of security because no threats could enter into the city. That all the measurements were also 4,500 cubits. And all designs in Ezekiel's vision are perfectly square. What does that perfection reflect? It reflects the wisdom of its architect. And it was not a person or a group of people, but it was the Lord God himself who architected this building. This makes me think of Psalm 127, verse 1, where Solomon, the builder of God's first temple, he once said these words, that unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. What is the point? The point is the city is built and these gates are guarded by God, not just by a person. And nothing that God does is in vain. Everything that God does is very purposeful in our lives. And when God is the builder of our lives, we can rest assured that our future is safe and secure in him. Are you building your life with God as the architect? Are you allowing him to construct your life? Because unless the Lord builds your house, friends, you are laboring in vain. You might as well quit right now. Let the Lord build your house and there'll be safety and security in him. He backs up his work. Thirdly, today we see presence. In verse 35, the scripture says, and the name of the city from that time on will be, the Lord is there. It's a beautiful way to end the book of Ezekiel with these final last words, the Lord is there. And that is God's desire for his people, his desires to be where they are. To be there. In Psalm 24, verse 7, 24, verse 9, David wrote these beautiful words. He said, lift up your heads, you gates. 
be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And all of this, as you can see, is building to a climax, like every good book, like every book, good story. All of this is building to a climax that is going to reach its finality right here in Ezekiel 48. That from the land all the way to the gates, the vision is moving to the presence of God. That is the final destination. In Jewish culture, a name has a meaning. And it has bearing on a person, place, or thing. And often speaks of great destiny. In Hebrew... There is a word, Yahweh Shama, or better known as Jehovah Shama, which means that the Lord is there. Jehovah Shama means the Lord is there. And we were expecting the name of the city to be Jerusalem, right? Or maybe if we know about Revelation, we're thinking New Jerusalem. No, God puts his name on this city. This place is Jehovah Shama, the Lord is there. God's presence is no longer limited to the confines of a temple. God is depicted as living among his people. That is the original design. And suddenly we have a flashback all the way to Genesis chapter 3 verse 8. Where it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of day. I think God liked to just hang out with his people. God just wanted to be wherever Adam and Eve were until sin came and interrupted the unity and intimacy of that relationship. That's what God desired to do. Then we get this flash forward to the future. Revelation 21 verse 3 where it says, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. I want you to know that God desires to presence himself among his people and to be a part of their daily lives. That God's presence is not just here on Sunday and then Monday to Saturday there's an absence of God's presence. No, God's presence is with you 24-7, 365 days a year. Now, the good news is that God is still Jehovah Shammah. That has not changed. And you do not need to travel to any place in the world to find God. He is where his people are. That's why I love gathering on Sunday mornings with all of you. Because there's hundreds of people that gather in this place. And like I said earlier, where two or three are gathered, he promises to presence himself in that place. And just because of that promise, we can experience the power and the presence of God. That's a guarantee. That's a promise you can hold on to. He is here. He is wherever his people are. And that gives a sense of immediacy to the manifest presence of God. It is not the Lord will be there. No, it's the Lord is there. In Psalm 139, verse 7 to 8, David, the psalmist, he penned these words. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, what? You are there. And if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Where is he? He is there. 
Now, some of you have been asking in your life, where is the Lord? Where is he? You tell me he's around, but I don't see him. I don't see him. I don't feel him. I don't hear him. And I'm tired of this because I want to see the Lord. I have a lot of problems in my life. I need his help. Doesn't he care? The word of the Lord for you this morning is this. The Lord is there. No matter what you're facing, no matter what obstacle you have in your life, he is there. That's his promise. You need to hold on to his promise today because his promises are what? Yes and amen. Can I get a witness today that he is there? He's there. So in the midst of your marriage, when it's not going well, he's there. In the midst of the dysfunction of your family relationships, I'm telling you today, he is there. In the midst of your illness and your sickness, he is there. In the midst of your unemployment, he is there. In the midst of some of the trauma you've experienced in your life, he is there. The Lord is there. So if the Lord is there, that changes everything. It gives us a great expectation of his intervention in our lives. That we are never left alone. We are never forsaken. He's always there with us. The problem is not with him. The problem, my friends, is often with us and our ability to perceive. The worship team returns to the platform this morning and we come to a close today. I remember way back to a point in my life, I was 10 years old. My parents decided it was a good time for us to go on a trip to Israel. How many people have been to Israel before? Some hands, this is good. I see some hands all over the place. The Holy Land. It was one of the most life-changing experiences of my life, even as a 10-year-old. You know, I really wish that everyone would have this opportunity at some point of their life. I know you're going to ask me after service, Pastor, when are we going to the Holy Land? Uh, don't, don't get all excited, okay? That's not what I'm trying to... This is not the sermon illustration, okay? Buy your ticket today. That's not it. I really do wish that everybody can have this experience because it is life-changing and Before going to Israel, whenever I read my Bible, I would have to imagine what things were like. But after returning from Israel, I could vividly recollect the sights and the sounds. Now, granted, they were not the first century sounds and sights. They were the 20th century sounds and sights, but it gave me a sense. You know, I walked upon the land of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's pretty cool. I walked through the gates of Jerusalem been there, done that. I walked around the holy city and as I did, I could not help but feel the presence of the Lord in that place. There's no way to describe it. Unless you've gone to Israel, then you would say the same, probably. But you feel the Lord there in that place. And I think I felt exactly what Ezekiel was speaking of in Ezekiel 48, verse 35. That there is this profound feeling that comes upon you in Israel. That Israel is a special place to God. That he hasn't forgotten those people. 
But friends, before you pack your bags and you buy a ticket, let me just tell you something. You do not have to travel to Jerusalem, Israel, in order to feel the presence of the Lord. Save your money. Save your time. The Lord is not only there, he is here. Because he is omnipresent God, which means that he is everywhere. And what that means is the God who is here right now at 395 King Street North, ministering to our hearts, is the same God who is in every other country, meeting with all other sorts of believers today. Isn't that amazing? No limitations, no travel, no jet lag. with them, just as he's with us. When you're at church, he's there. When you're at home, he's there. When you're on vacation, even, he's there. When you're at work, he's there. When you're at school students, university students, college students, high school students, junior high students, he is there. There is never a moment in your life when God is not there. Some of us have to come to this realization today. He's always there. And here's my prayer for all of us today is that we would become more aware of his presence. If he's always there, then I'm the one missing it. I'm the one not perceiving. I have eyes I can't see. I have ears I cannot hear. But if I were to tune my heart with God's heart, I would see him there. He's always there. He's everywhere.